This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode, we have questions from Emmeline, Amara, Benton, Susanna, and Tim. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, and then we'll look at this episode's big question. And as always, we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. This week, our serious questions come from Emmeline and Amara. First, Emmeline asks, How long is an age, as in, to the end of the age? Well, the words that Emmeline is quoting here are the words of Jesus at the end of Matthew's Gospel. In chapter 28, verse 20, uh, right at the end of what we call the Great Commission, you'll find these words. Jesus tells his followers to go out and make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, because all authority has now been placed in his hands. And then, right at the end, he says these words, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, Emmeline's question is, how long is an age exactly? Well, the Greek word that's being translated here is aeonos, which is where we get our English word eon. Now, if you look up the word eon in the dictionary, the definition says it's an indefinite but very long period of time. But to be honest with you, to understand what Jesus is saying here, the word that you want to focus on isn't actually age, it's end. Now, in English, the word end has more than one meaning. End, obviously, sometimes means when something is over. For example, uh, we're all ready for the end of the sermon so that we can say it is finally over. But sometimes... When we say end, what we mean is the goal or the purpose. For example, if you hear people arguing about whether the ends justify the means, what they're talking about is whether it's okay to do bad things, which is the means, in order to accomplish a good goal, which is the ends. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one says, that your chief end as a human being is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now here, end means your purpose. Now in Matthew 28, the Greek word that's being translated end is sentelesis, and that means completion or fulfillment. So, the translators here, when they use the word end, they're using it in a complicated way. Jesus isn't just talking about when the time runs out on this eon, but rather when the purpose of this eon is fulfilled or completed. Now, the purpose of this eon is to make disciples, to glorify Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as per the Great Commission. And Jesus, in these words, is promising that while we do this as a church, he will be with us at every step of the way, right up until the end or the full completion of this work when he returns again. And now Amara has a question about music. 
What is your favorite song that we sing in church? Well, Amara, I've mentioned in the past uh, how hard it is to choose one favorite of anything. And when it comes to music, I think it's definitely hard to choose just one song as an all-time favorite because different songs will speak to you at different times of life and different experiences. When you want to rejoice and celebrate, you want songs that give you the words for that. But when you want to lament uh, or mourn, you'll gravitate towards really different kinds of songs. And so what you love in music often depends on what you need, what kind of song you need to express your heart. So I don't know that I could really give you like my favorite song of all that we sing in worship, but I do think I could tell you my favorite type of song that we sing. My favorite type of song is the psalm. So every week, as you know, in our worship services, we sing a psalm, sometimes more than one, but at least one, and we sing it in a very special way. We take a refrain from the psalm and we set it to music, and then the congregation sings that refrain in between readings from the rest of the psalm. So it's kind of like a a poetry reading, like we're reading poetry out loud, and then people are singing in between the stanzas. Now, the reason I love this is that God gave us the book of Psalms to be our special songbook. This should be the first place that we go when we need music for worship, music to express our hearts. But all too often, we don't sing the psalms, and we don't sing them as much as we could, mainly because it's a challenge, because Hebrew music and our music work very differently. It's it's not always easy for us to figure out how to sing the psalms. So in the past, in the church, people would rewrite the text of the psalms. They'd make the lines rhyme, which is our lyrics usually work, and then set them to music. Now, this is fine, and we sing a lot of songs at church that are like this, where the the words don't match the psalm exactly, but someone's taken the, the words of the psalm and paraphrased them so that they more or less follow the meaning so that they become singable. That's great. But personally, I really like the idea of singing the exact words of scripture in worship. And so we found a way that we can sing and read and sing again the exact words of the Psalms. And this way lets us have an experience of the Psalms that's really quite unique. It's one of the things that makes our worship so unique, really, because not very many churches do this the way that we do. So I really love the fact that we do. And I hope you love it, too. And now it's time for the big question. This week's big question comes from Benton, and it's a pretty deep one, so buckle up your seatbelt. Benton asks, If God did not want Adam and Eve to sin, then why did he make the devil? 
As we get started here, first, let's think about the logic of Benton's question. So it was Satan in the form of a serpent who first tempted Eve and then Eve sinned. And after that, Adam followed her example. So if you were to ask the question, what caused sin? One way that you might look at it is this. If God didn't want our first parents, Adam and Eve, to sin, then couldn't he have prevented it just by not creating Satan in the first place? This is a similar question to the one you'll hear sometimes people ask about World War II. World War II was a, a, a terrible, terrible war, and the cause of it was Adolf Hitler. So if you could go back in time and shoot Hitler before he came to power, couldn't you stop all the bad things that happened later? Well, the reason that nobody did that, nobody shot Adolf Hitler before he came to power, when he was just a boy, for example, uh, is that at the time they had no idea what he was going to do. In the case of Satan, of course, we can't make that excuse because God is all-knowing. So nothing that Satan ever does comes as a surprise to God. God knows already. So this is a legitimate question. If God didn't want sin to happen, then why make Satan? Here's something to think about, though. There was more than one way to prevent sin. God could have made Adam and Eve incapable of sin. He could have made them so unchanging that they would never yield to temptation. Instead, the Westminster Confession in chapter 4 says that God made them with the law of God written in their hearts and the power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing or sinning, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. So he could have made them incapable of sin, but he didn't. God, being all-powerful and all-knowing, certainly could have prevented sin from happening. If he didn't do that, then there must have been a good reason. But what is it? Now, I'm not even going to pretend that I can fully explain this. To do that, I'd have to understand the mind of God. And as human beings, we just can't do that. But the Bible does give us a way of thinking about mysteries like this. I think the best place to start is the book of Job. In the book of Job, Job suffers a great deal. And the suffering of Job is not a mystery. He suffers because Satan torments him. Now, why doesn't God stop this? Well, because it was God who permitted it in the first place. God is the one who brought Job's name up in the presence of Satan, and he did it for his glory. Job's faithfulness and suffering brought glory to God. Suffering itself isn't good, but faithful endurance is. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes that God works everything according to the counsel of his will. And that God's entire plan of salvation from before the foundation of the world was designed, as Paul says, to the praise of his glorious grace. So our ultimate salvation, Paul says, will be to the praise of his glory. So we don't know in any detailed way why God permits this particular sin or that particular sin, why that bad thing is allowed to happen, but... In the big picture way, we do know 
that everything God does and everything he permits is ultimately for his glory, which means that it's intended to show and even to celebrate his greatness, his, his goodness, and his love. Now, it may be impossible for us to draw a straight line between a bad thing, a sinful thing, and how God is ultimately glorified by it. In fact, you shouldn't even try to make those simple one-to-one comparisons. And also, you shouldn't start thinking this way. You shouldn't imagine that sinful things are somehow actually good because they ultimately are made to glorify God. That's the error that Paul is addressing in Romans chapter 3 when he says, If through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? And Paul dismisses this logic as utterly ridiculous and sinful. So don't look at it that way. Instead, when you reflect on a mystery like this, when you reflect on it in the right way, it leads you to a sense of wonder at how great God is. We literally cannot even comprehend him. And even that is a reason to praise him and to trust in him. So whenever you're in doubt, whenever you're struggling to understand the ways of God, one thing that you can count on is that God does what he does for his glory. And he has called us to do what we do for his glory as well. And before we wrap things up, let's answer a couple of fun questions from Susanna and Tim. Susanna has a question about my career path. She asks, what did you also consider doing for a job as a kid? Why did you decide to be a pastor? Did you ever consider being an author when you grew up? I want to be one. Well, Susanna, I always wanted to be an author when I was a kid and also a ninja. I did become an author. I've written lots of books I can't actually reveal whether or not I also became a ninja because ninjas try to keep that stuff pretty secret. I will say that when I was a boy, I would write stories and draw pictures to illustrate them. And if I remember correctly, they were mostly about adventures in outer space. But then I ended up writing detective stories. It was actually much later in life that God called me to become a pastor. Now, Becoming a pastor is not really something you decide to do the way you decide to do other jobs. It's more something that the Holy Spirit draws you into. And for me, it took a number of years to recognize that that's what was happening. Now, if you want to grow up to be an author, the best advice that I can give you, Susanna, is to write and write and write. You should let your creativity run wild. And then once you've written a story, go back and rewrite it. And make it as good as you can, because it's actually that. It's rewriting that shows the difference between people who just love the idea of being a writer and people who love to write. Now Tim has a question about sports. Hmm. What's your favorite baseball team? Well, Tim, they say that baseball is as American as apple pie. And there are people who love baseball so much that they not only go to games, but they memorize all the statistics for all their favorite players. In fact, my friend Jeff, he loves the Milwaukee Brewers, which is funny because it seems like they lose pretty much every game 
he brought me to one of their games once and they lost that one in a big way. But to be honest, I really enjoyed my time up in the stands. It was slow and super relaxing and I brought a book with me and I got a lot of reading done without too many distractions. My favorite team, though, is not the Brewers. In fact, it's not an American baseball team at all. Instead, it's a fantasy baseball team, one that I managed myself. Now, all my friends at Worldview Academy love baseball, so they started a fantasy league and invited me to join. Now, I named my team the Rundamentalists, and I said that I would leave it up to God's will what happened to them. What I meant by that was I would let the computer choose my players And then I never updated my roster throughout the season. In fact, I didn't do anything at all. I just let it happen. And by the end of the season, most of my players were actually on the disabled list. But you know what? Even so, I finished in the top three of my league anyway. And that's why the fundamentalists are my favorite baseball team. They didn't take any effort at all, but I beat a lot of people who put a lot of effort into it. It was easier for me to play than it was for Tom Sawyer to paint a fence. And that's the kind of effort I like to put into sports. That, I think, is as American as apple pie, too. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will always stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.